Acute aortic syndrome is a life-threatening emergency. It's difficult to diagnose and it's often missed in the emergency department, but it's a syndrome that must be on a physician's radar. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, consulting editor for CMAJ. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Olay, who is here to talk about acute aortic syndrome and how it is best diagnosed. Dr. Olay is one of the authors of a clinical practice guideline published in CMAJ. He's an emergency medicine physician and research director for emergency medicine at Health Science North in Sudbury, Ontario. I've reached him in Sudbury. Welcome, Robert. Thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Dan. Let's start with a, a simple one, or maybe it's not so simple. What is acute aortic syndrome, or AAS? Well, you hit the nail on the head in the introduction there. It's a time-sensitive, life-threatening emergency. It's an umbrella term that describes three distinct uh, clinical entities, but they all have in common that uh, blood leaks into the wall of the major artery that supplies blood to your entire body, the aorta. And this blood, it separates the layers of the wall of the aorta, and that's a problem because it can block blood flow to major organs in your body, and it can even rupture the or break apart the aorta itself. In regards to how common it is, uh, it's, it's difficult because a lot of these patients, they, they can actually pass away prior to arriving in the hospital. Our best guess from a community point of view is that the prevalence is somewhere between three and five per thousand uh, people. Or within the emergency departments, uh, the best guess is probably one in every 2,000 presentations of chest pain or back pain. Now, the thing when we chat about prevalence is that it can be difficult to put into an understandable context. So, question for you, Dan. Do you, do you ever play the lotto at all? Like lotto 649? Yes. And, and uh, because I'm still on this recording, you can see that I have not won. Yeah. So in, in context of, of how likely you are to win Lotto 649, so your likelihood in that is about 1 in 14 million. So it's more common than winning Lotto 649. And do you, do you scuba dive at all? Uh, snorkel. Snorkel, right on. Well, snorkel is inherently safer than scuba diving. So your chances of actually having a, uh, a fatal accident while scuba diving is about 1 in 35,000. So the chances of getting an acute aortic syndrome is about the same amount as the chances of having a fatal accident when you're scuba diving. So not that common because people still scuba dive, but I guess one of the big issues with this, and, and I actually have a patient in mind because I, you know, I had a patient with this. One of the things is that about one quarter of patients with acute aortic syndrome are not diagnosed till about a full day after they present in the emergency department. Why is this so missed? I mean, it's not that common, but why don't we necessarily think about it? Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's it's not that common, but if we miss it, then the the mortality from a, a misdiagnosis is quite high, and and it increases the longer that the patient remains undiagnosed, and the mortality can be upwards of ninety percent at at two weeks. There's a lot of different reasons why it is missed. Um, 
One is that it presents with very common symptoms of more common diagnoses. So one of the most common presentations would be chest pain. And it's way more likely that a patient presenting with chest pain has a, or is having a heart attack or a blood clot in their lungs or another issue than acute aortic syndrome. Um, and so it mimics more common diagnoses. The second thing is those more common diagnoses, they actually have quite defined pathways to stratify or risk stratify, decide how likely that this person with chest pain is having a heart attack or having a blood clot in their lungs. And acute aortic syndrome doesn't really have that defined way of deciding who is at some risk versus who is at high risk. And probably the last thing is that because things like heart attacks and blood clots in their lungs and strokes are more common, physicians and nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and nurses and anyone who's involved in the care of these patients, uh, they have this picture, this clinical picture of what a heart attack looks like and also the different ways it can present, the variation of the presentation. And so they're better at picking up these diagnoses. Now, acute aortic syndrome, because they don't see them that often, they haven't developed this picture of what they look like. And so they don't get this pattern recognition of, oh yeah, this patient, they have acute aortic syndrome. So it's hard to generate that suspicion for it. And so the rarity of it, the mimicking more common diagnoses and the lack of a defined diagnostic pathway makes these ripe for being missed. You've already sort of alluded to the fact that that prognosis is not good, but it does relate, I think, to how quickly patients are treated, which makes sense if you've got leaking blood. Can you tell us about that relationship between prognosis and the time to treatment? As I say, it's a, it's a clinical spectrum and whether the blood is leaking into the uh, wall, which is going upwards in the aorta back into the heart or down to the rest of the body and whether it is from a tear in the aorta or whether it's from an ulcer, which is penetrated through or whether it's from a spontaneous rupture of blood vessels, which are in the wall of the aorta. And they all have different treatments and they all have slightly different prognoses, but really related to the emergency department treatment for these, what you're trying to do is you're trying to reduce the stress of that tear in or penetration in the wall. And so what you want to do is you want to lower their heart rate and lower their blood pressure. So that tear is experiencing an easier, more fluid passage of blood, which is not going to propagate it. The issue is, is that the longer that they remain untreated, um, means the higher likelihood that this tear or this unzipping of the aorta is going to uh, increase in size. And as we mentioned before, the increase in size means that it's likely to affect the blood flow coming from the aorta to different major organs. So this can be uh, damage to the kidneys, damage to the bowels, the liver, or if it unzips up towards the heart, you can block blood flow to the heart, you can block blood flow to the brain. And so you get massive complications with the propagation of this uh, unzipping of the aorta. The first recommendation in the guideline is about assessing the probability the patient might have acute aortic syndrome before you do any diagnostic testing. So in other words, uh, looking at the pretest probability. Why is it important for a clinician to start with assessing the pretest probability? It's a great question. I think the one of the things you alluded to before was this generation of uh, what does a patient with acute aortic syndrome look like? And 
in regards to assessing pretest probability, that's really how much does the patient in front of you match a, um, a recollection or a, a set of symptoms which you have in your mind, which is associated with the diagnosis. Um, and really the important thing in regards generating that probability is knowing what signs and symptoms are associated with acute aortic syndrome and then grouping those in such a way that it defines a likelihood that this patient actually has the condition. I think if a patient presents in front of you and they have every sign or symptom you've ever heard of for acute aortic syndrome, then inherently you know they are high risk and you're going to move fast to treat, to investigate, to refer. The difficulty lies in they have a couple of symptoms or those that don't really have any high risk symptoms, but you still have a concern. In order to uh, assign a person to either a low or moderate or a high probability, I mean, the first thing is being able to assess the important signs and symptoms. Um, really, those fall into three categories. It's risk factors uh, for acute aortic syndrome. Uh, there are pain features which are associated with it, and there's physical exam findings. And then really the, the fourth one is how likely are they to have an alternative diagnosis? So how much do they match a pattern of an alternative condition uh, than acute aortic syndrome? So can, can you give us a little bit of I, an idea of what sort of features on, on any of these will put people into a particular category? So just a uh, give us an example of what of these features that you're talking about might put somebody in, let's say, a moderate risk category. So the way we define the moderate risk group is really uh, defining who is high risk and who is low risk. And then the moderate risk group is really those who don't fall into those alternative categories. Um, the way we went uh, about really defining the high-risk uh, people is when we reviewed all the studies which looked at the diagnostic accuracy of signs and symptoms for acute aortic syndrome, we uh, pooled those studies together to get an idea of that if somebody presents with a high-risk symptom, uh, what is the prevalence of acute aortic syndrome in that population? So for example, the um, classically thought of high-risk symptoms or on physical exam would be if they had a, um, a pulse deficit. So if they had an asymmetry of pulse between uh, major arteries or whether they look like they had an ischemic limb. Other high risk on physical exam would be those who have neurological deficits, either sensory or motor associated with pain, or if somebody is in shock, or if somebody has a, uh, a leaking aortic valve associated with pain. When we looked at those features there, we found that our best estimate of the prevalence of acute aortic syndrome in people presenting to the emergency department with these specific features uh, was greater than 5%. So it was 5, 10, 15, 20% of patients who had these features were ultimately diagnosed with acute aortic syndrome. So we define that as a high risk group of people. And we did this for the other common signs and symptoms which were associated with acute aortic syndrome. So with the classically reported pain features such as severe or worse pain, abrupt onset, thunderclap pain, tearing, ripping, or migrating pain. We found that if you have uh, really three or more of these high-risk features, the chances of having acute aortic syndrome were quite high. 
And then the last one is in the uh, risk factors wise. So whether you had a connective tissue disease, whether you have an aortic valve disease, whether you've recently had an aortic manipulation, whether you have a family history of acute aortic syndrome, or whether you have a known or suspected aortic uh, aneurysm. We find that if you have a known aortic aneurysm and you're presenting with symptoms consistent with acute aortic syndrome, then this group here was actually uh, at high risk of ultimately being diagnosed with acute aortic syndrome. So the high risk group is essentially anybody who has a known aortic aneurysm and presenting with pain. If they have multiple, so three or more pain features, or if they have any physical exam finding associated with acute aortic syndrome, any of these things put somebody in a high risk group and they should have expedited advanced imaging. Now on the other end of the spectrum, you have somebody who's got no physical exam findings associated with it. You've got somebody who's got no aortic aneurysm, and then you have somebody who has zero high-risk pain feature. Now, these people here are at inherently low risk. And so really, unless you have an incredible clinical suspicion that, you know, this person here has acute aortic syndrome, they actually don't really require any further investigation. So you bookend your probability into a low or into a high-risk group, and then everybody else falls in between. And they need something else to say that they are low-risk and they don't require any further investigation. And that's really the basis of the uh, recommendations and then really the basis of what we tried to do with the uh, decision aid uh, that we incorporated into the paper to try and give some sort of practical recommendations associated with the overarching um, important recommendations that we made in the guidelines. And I think that's a really useful tool in the guideline is the decision aid. So um, clinicians who are listening, you don't have to remember all of this. It's a really, really helpful scoring. And what I really appreciated about it is, is the last thing you said, when you just have this gut feeling that despite all of, you know, everything sounds okay, but you have this gut feeling, I think this is the most likely diagnosis. That gives it a score that would put the patient in the moderate risk probability category, and then you'd go on to testing. So, so I think it's, it's a very, very helpful tool. Now, uh, once a clinician has had somebody come in and very quickly, uh, this is really you know, a very easy tool to use, classifies them into one of these categories, the next step is obviously uh, is the diagnostic strategy. What did your guideline group recommend? I think the the idea was making uh, people comfortable with uh, doing nothing if they have no uh, high-risk uh, features. So saying that if you have a low pretest probability for the condition, then they're actually safe uh, without any further investigations. And the second thing is also helping to find that high-risk group of people uh, that requires expedited CT. And, and this can be uh, difficult because it's, it's a rare diagnosis. It can be hard to fight against indecision to push for an expedited CT, to transfer the patient if you don't have access to CT. Um, and so those who are high risk really need that emergent CT to fight against this increase in mortality per hour. Um, and the intermediate risk group, this is the, the one where it's really not as clear about where we should, uh, where we should be proceeding. Um, the committee 
uh, taking in the values and preferences of the, the wide group of uh, physicians and patients and nurses that we, we had assessing the evidence and coming to a conclusion, they felt that that group did need something more to reduce the likelihood of acute aortic syndrome. And taking into the available evidence, they suggested that uh, D-dimer is a reasonable thing to conduct in a moderate risk group so that if it's negative, they go into an extremely low risk group. And if it's positive, it doesn't move you a huge amount out of that moderate risk group, but you can't say that they're not in acute aortic syndrome. And if you don't have any other reason for this patient's pain, then you really need to proceed with further investigation, which in the context of acute aortic syndrome is imaging of the aorta. So basically, if we look at the categories, your low risk probability, which is less than a half a percent, no further investigations. Somebody in the moderate risk probability uh, category, which is about 0.5% to 5% risk, D-dimer, and then higher than that, so higher than 5%, you'd be recommending CT aorta. Is there a particular uh, modality of CT aorta that you would recommend? Yeah, the um, Canadian Thoracic Radiology Society was involved in uh, reviewing the guidelines and they really felt strongly that uh, if you have access to it, then an ECG-gated uh, contrast-enhanced uh, CT aorta is important. It can be an issue because the aorta and the heart, they're dynamic structures. They're, they're not pausing to allow perfect capture of, of imaging. So you can get a motion artifact, which can be falsely interpreted as a, a tear or an unzipping of the aorta. So the ECG gated modality really allows you to time your image for a rest period, which gives you the optimal uh, imaging of the, the aorta. You know, it's really interesting when we when we get to this stage in, in a guideline when it's when it's published, and it sort of boils down to a sort of few key messages, right? But it that represent um, you know incredible hours of research and work to get down to 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 these few points. So, if if you had you know you've got people listening here, if you had one thing you would like the people listening to this podcast to, to walk away from it remembering, what would that one thing be? Oh, can I have two things? <laughs> oh, you can have two. I'll let you have two. Well, one uh, one thing is really uh, being familiar with the high-risk uh, pain features, risk factors, and physical examination findings. Um, it's sometimes difficult to remember these, so really asking and documenting these features here allows you to generate a pretest probability. However you do it, whether you use the clinical decision aid or you uh, generate your own through your, your experience, the very minimum that you really need to do is gather the information which is important for you generating your gestalt or your pretest probability. The second thing, um, and it's one of the uh, core principles of our guideline committee here, is that guidelines need to be taken in context of the practice where they're being applied. So it's very different when you're working in a center, whether you have 24-hour access to CT and you just need to walk down the hall, then if you're working in a rural location where transporting someone for a CT means that you lose a nurse, uh, you sometimes lose a physician, and it's a long transport time away from the patient's uh, friends and family. So the decisions 
to investigate are taken in context of your local resources. These guidelines are meant to help you make an informed decision, sometimes in conjunction with the patient's values and preferences. So it's, it's, it's a guide to give you information to make the best decision for the patient. Those are two really important points. I think you probably snuck a few more in there as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for, for having me, Dan. And thank you very much for CMAJ for the incredible uh, editing and support. And I would also really like to thank the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, the Canadian Society of Cardiac Surgery, the Canadian Society of Vascular Surgery, and also the Canadian Society of Thoracic Radiology for their important feedback and endorsement of these guidelines. And then really the other guideline committee members and our patient representatives. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Ole. To read the guideline he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Diane Kelsall, Consulting Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.